That looks like a really high tech razor. <laughs> <It's not. laughs> yeah, tonight I'll be shaving. Um, okay, so tonight my talk is on Brave New World and our cultic happiness. So how many people here tonight have read the novel Brave New World? Okay, like a fair number. That's good. Is it one of the new Harry Potter ones? <laughs> <laughs> it was it predated Harry Potter. Just oh, slightly, okay. But it's English. So a lot of people read it in high school English, but I did not. I just read it recently, and I was really struck by how much this vision of a dystopian society reflects the Western world that we live in today, um, especially on its emphasis of pursuit of pleasure and comfort. So what I'm going to do in the lecture tonight is give a brief biography of Huxley, the author, um, then a summary of the novel, the plot, before we move into talking about the book and its parallels to today's society. So Aldous Huxley. He was born in 1894 in England and died in 1963. He was the grandson of T.H. Huxley, a scientist famous for his position as Darwin's bulldog who supported evolution um, and opposed organized religion. Aldous Huxley's brother and half-brother would also become renowned biologists, so he came from a very scientific family. Huxley's mother died of cancer when Huxley was 14. Huxley had planned to go into a career of medicine and become a physician, but these plans were cut short because of his deteriorating eyesight, so instead he studied English Lit at Oxford. During a brief stint teaching French at Eton College, Huxley taught George Orwell, who would go on to author the famous dystopian novel, 1984. Huxley also worked for a while in an advanced chemical plant. This experience of an ordered universe in a world of planless incoherence would influence his writing of Brave New World. Other influences on the book include a trip to America, where Huxley was disturbed by the optimistic extravagance as well as his observations of fascist Italy and the Soviet Union. Huxley wrote four novels of social satire before Brave New World. Brave New World continues in this satirical vein with a semi-serious tone and a lot of wordplay in a futuristic setting, though. In 1937, Huxley moved his family to California. I guess he didn't hate America enough. <laughs> there, he wrote Hollywood screenplays and became increasingly interested in Hindu thought though he remained agnostic throughout his life. He also experimented with psychedelic drugs, considering these important for spiritual awakening. Huxley died November 22nd, 1963. Who, who knows what other date, or who else died on that date? Two other famous people, and? JFK. So both of those deaths were really overshadowed. Um, by JFK. Someone even wrote a book imagining a conversation after death between Huxley, C.S. Lewis, and JFK. Uh, on his deathbed, Huxley asked his wife to inject him with LSD, which he did twice, and he died later that day. That brings Tripping up questions the about the brownies out there. <laughs> <laughs> it's not themed food. Oh, okay. All right. All right. I don't know what you're experiencing right now. <laughs> well, I'm having a great really so. <laughs> The colors are awesome. So that's a brief rundown of Huxley's life. There's a lot more to say, but um, I'm going to move into a plot summary of Brave New World. And this is going to include a lot of spoilers. So if you're really hoping to read the book, you can just leave your room for a few minutes and come back. Um, so the book is set primarily in the world state 
in the year 2579 AD. The world state's motto is community, identity, stability. And the first chapter is set in the central London Hatchery and Conditioning Center. We meet the director of Hatcheries and Conditioning, the DHC, and follow him as he explains the process of creating and conditioning human beings. This gleaming laboratory is where human beings are made. No longer do humans reproduce sexually and give birth. All babies are created in the lab and then decanted instead of born. 70% of female embryos are given male hormones that render them infertile. Otherwise, they're pretty normal, except they have the slightest tendency to grow beards. <laughs> this is why we need the high-tech razors. <laughs> <laughs> the remaining 30% of fertile women are trained in Malthusian drill, which is a completely effective form of birth control. And they carry this at all times in a nice little stylish belt. Scientists create these test tube babies by combining sperm with eggs harvested from the fertile woman. The eggs are then sent through the Bokanovsky process, which causes them to bud and self-replicate, creating many clones. The developing embryos are injected with or deprived of various substances at different stages in their development. And this creates five different caste groups of people, alphas, betas, deltas, gammas, and epsilons, as well as subgroups within those castes. And each of these groups has been physically altered to fit a certain station in life. The alphas become things like scientists, while the epsilons run the elevators up and down, and they have very limited communication ability. Besides these physical alterations, the castes are taught to love their station in life by behavioral conditioning, starting from infancy. Should they have any unpleasant feelings, the wonder drug Soma will soothe them and help them escape reality. Lenina Crown, the pretty female protagonist, for the most part follows the default views of her society, although she feels less comfortable with promiscuity than is considered right. Lenina works as a fetus technician in the hatchery. She has romantic interest in Bernard Marx, who is a stunted, introverted alpha psychologist. He's rumored to have been giving alcohol before he was decanted, which makes him a little odd. <laughs> He has feelings for Lenina and hates that she's treated like a piece of mutton by the men who discuss her sexual performance. The two become lovers, with Bernard expressing some regret that they went to bed after the first date. Bernard takes Lenina on a trip to a savage reservation, which is in New Mexico. The reservation is an area that was unable to be civilized and that is fenced off from outside society. Those who live in the reservation practice a tribal religion mixed with elements of Christianity. Shortly after their arrival on the outskirts of the reservation, Bernard learns that the DHC, the Director of Hatcheries and Conditioning, plans to banish him for, to Iceland for his subversive behavior. On the reservation, Bernard and Lenina meet John, also referred to as the Savage. He is the son of Linda, the former lover of the DHC. Linda and the DHC had become separated many years ago on a trip to the reservation. Though Linda had observed the Malthusian drill for birth control, she somehow became pregnant and has been stranded in the reservation ever since, where she gave birth to John. She's addicted to alcohol and obsessed with returning to the world state. Now, John has only been exposed to civilization through his mother's stories, which are always very glowing, <laughs> and a copy of the complete works of William Shakespeare, which is banned reading in civilization. And John's speech is always peppered with quotes from Shakespeare. 
and his ideology is strongly shaped by Elizabethan England. Bernard hatches a plan to return to London with John, who is evidence of the DHC's illegal sexual reproduction. Remember, it's banned to reproduce the human baby naturally. John has been raised to believe that the society of the other place is as wonderful as Linda says. He agrees to return to civilization with Bernard and Lenina along with Linda. John and Lenina are strongly attracted to each other, but John places a high value on chastity and idolizes Lenina as a Shakespearean type heroine whose virtue must be preserved and who must be one with some kind of heroic deed, maybe killing a lion or something like that. And Lenina is just baffled by his standoffish behavior. When Linda and John publicly confront the DHC, the crowd reacts with shock and laughter to his having fathered a child with a woman who actually looks like she's in her 40s. Hmm. The DHC resigns in shame, and Bernard is safe from de deportation to Iceland. Bernard enjoys his newfound popularity as he exhibits John the Savage around London. Then, John refuses to appear at an important party, and Bernard is disgraced. He learns that his intellectual friend, Helmholtz Watson, the only other man who seems to recognize himself as an individual, has also conflicting, conflicted with the authorities. Instead of teaching propaganda in the university where he works, Helmholtz has composed and recited to his students a poem praising solitude and has been reported. When John finally confesses his feelings for Lenina, she immediately strips off her clothing and embraces him. Disgusted by her behavior and by his own attraction to her, John attacks her, calling her an impudent strumpet. That's a Shakespearean insult for you. <laughs> Lenina locks herself in the bathroom, and John leaves when he discovers Linda, his mother, has been taken to the Park Lane Hospital for the dying. Here, television is constantly on, and the air is filled with various perfumes. Linda is in bed on a permanent Soma holiday. A group of children who are being death-conditioned to anticipate visiting the hospital are disgusted by Linda's appearance. In her drug state, Linda confuses John with a former lover. John shakes her angrily and she dies. John then goes on a rampage in the hospital, throwing Soma out of the windows. Helmholtz and Bernard have been looking for John and are arrested along with him. The three men are then taken to Mustafa Mond, who is the resident controller for Western Europe. Mond explains how the world state functions and why. He says, people are happy, they get what they want, and they never want what they can't get. Mond tells the men that they will be exiled to an island. He reveals that in his youth, he was almost exiled himself for doing illegal science experiments. Bernard pleads tearfully not to be exiled, but Mond says that Iceland is actually a reward because there are people who've got independent ideas of their own can live and work together. Mond chose to become a controller instead of pursue pure science. Truth, a menace, science is a public danger, he says. Society has become focused on comfort and happiness instead. Universal happiness keeps the wheel steadily turning. Truth and beauty can't, says Mond. John has a private conversation with Mond in which John argues for religion and suffering, and Mond argues for comfort and stability, saying, there isn't any need for civilized man to bear anything unpleasant. Mond won't let John be exiled with Bernard and Helmholtz, so John exiles himself to a lighthouse on the English coast. Sounds pretty nice. 
There he refuses to enjoy the beauty of nature and solitude and instead practices penance, including self-flagellation, to atone for his sins in civilization. A filmmaker secretly documents him, causing a flock of tourists to arrive at the lighthouse. They demand that John whip himself. A woman implied to be Lenina arrives and John attacks her with his whip and then himself. The crowd is caught up in the frenzy, which devolves into an orgy and is joined by John. When John awakes from his soma stupor, he is stricken with guilt. In the morning, tourists find that John has hanged himself inside of the lighthouse. And that is how the book ends. On a very bright note. <laughs> so, moving into the analysis, briefly, <coughs> brief summary. So, Brave New World takes its title from a line from Shakespeare's play. Do you know which one? Anyone? I see that hand. <laughs> yes, The Tempest, correct, Clark. Um, oh, oh, brave new world that has such people in it. This line is spoken by Miranda, daughter of Prospero, a magician. The two of them live on an island where they were shipwrecked, alone except for the monstrous creature Caliban and the sprite Ariel. When an Italian ship flounders on the island's shores, Miranda meets men from the outside world for the first time and utters the Brave New World line. And some scholars have interpreted Brave New World as a retelling of The Tempest, with John as Miranda. The society Huxley describes in Brave New World is centered around the mantra, everybody is happy now. The controllers, at least Mustafa Mond, do seem to really believe that what they're doing is ensuring human happiness. Huxley writes in Brave New World Revisited, it has become clear that control through the punishment of undesirable behavior is less effective in the long run than control through the reinforcement of desirable behavior by rewards. And that government through terror works on the whole less well than government through the nonviolent manipulation of the environment and of the thoughts and feelings of individual men, women, and children. Punishment temporarily puts a stop to undesirable behavior, but does not permanently reduce the victim's tendency to indulge in it. Let me repeat that. Punishment temporarily puts a stop to undesirable behavior, but does not permanently reduce the victim's tendency to indulge in it. So Brave New World was published in 1932, amidst the Great Depression, and it's set in the year after Ford, 632. Henry Ford is the pseudo-religious figure that the society venerates. And since Ford died in 1947, this puts the setting of Brave New World at 2,579. Huxley gives us a little bit more room to catch up with his predictions than Orwell did with 1984. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in 1958, Huxley wrote Brave New World Revisited, which reflects on the predictions he'd made 27 years earlier. He expresses his surprise over how quickly society had already progressed towards fulfilling his prophecies. He thought it was a long time in the future. The rise of Stalin and Hitler showed the effective use of what Huxley calls herd poison, people being grouped in crowds and manipulated by propaganda. Individualism seemed to be quickly disappearing into big business and big government. Brave New World and 1984 have often been compared because of their differing portrayals of dystopian societies some of the earliest dystopian lit. Brave New World, written before the rise of Stalin and Hitler, uses pleasure as the primary motivating factor in society, and all war and social instability has been eliminated. 1984, which was published in 1949, 
with World War II fresh in everyone's minds, portrays a world constantly on the verge of war and citizens controlled by fear and violence. Margaret Atwood wrote that society has been seesawing back and forth between these two visions of the future. Just a race to see which one will win out. Huxley admired 1984, but wrote to Orwell that the lust for power can be just as completely satisfied by suggesting people into loving their servitude as by flogging them and kicking them into obedience. Mm -hmm. Loving their servitude. This is a theme that recurs again and again in this book. Critic Neil Postman wrote, Orwell feared that our fear will ruin us. Huxley feared that our desire will ruin us. So how does Huxley view our desire as potentially ruinous? In this lecture, I want to look at eight areas in which the society of Brave New World has caused people to love servitude to the detriment of being human. These eight areas are reproductive technology, behavioral conditioning, consumerism, sexuality, aging, entertainment, drugs, and solitude. So as I talk about the book's description of each area, I'll compare it to the parallels in our own society. <coughs> what I'm making the case is that just like in Brave New World, our society has made the pursuit of happiness our goal at a great cost to human freedom and dignity. So let's start with reproductive technology. Let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. <laughs> or a very bad place to start, depending on your view. So the first area of parallel between our society and that of the world state is technology, in particular reproductive technology. We don't actually learn a ton about technology in the Brave New World, but this is one that a lot of time is spent in describing. So Huxley's process of altering embryos was theoretical and impossible, as we know now. It was imagined before we had knowledge of DNA, but we've embarked on the journey of editing humans nonetheless. The discovery of an advanced DNA editing technology called CRISPR has created all kinds of ethical dilemmas. Recently, a, a Chinese scientist called He Jianxi, that's my best <laughs> attempt at pronouncing his name, was the first to edit babies with CRISPR, twin girls who have had a gene disabled so that they can't carry HIV AIDS. Many scientists denounce this act as unethical and dangerous, but others have supported it as a first step to creating more resilient humans. Now, no one can say for sure where this technology will lead, so I don't mean to be alarmist, but we can, we can imagine. <laughs> we can imagine all the ways humans might be spared suffering by editing their genes. Parents who want to give their child an advantage may eventually be able to select offspring who are mentally and physically gifted. Keeping up with the Joneses may look like creating a genetically engineered child. In fact, it may be considered wrong to have an unengineered child. Cruel. We already see this attitude towards certain disabilities. In the US, 67% of Down syndrome pregnancies are aborted. Iceland has already completely, almost completely eliminated babies born with Down syndrome. Almost 100% of pregnant women who test positive for Down syndrome will abort. And that's between 80 and 85% of women who have that testing done. So in 2003, only three babies with Down syndrome were born in Iceland. One counselor for Icelandic women who undergo abortions says that aborting Down syndrome babies relieves needless suffering for both the mother and the child. A commercial in France 
which was created to reassure those carrying a Down syndrome baby that their child could lead a normal life in many ways, was deemed inappropriate by the courts and banned from TV. The commercial was declared likely to disturb the conscience of women who had lawfully made different personal life choices. So happiness becomes the measure of morality. Sex selection before birth has rigged havoc in countries like India, where a surplus of men appears to be causing a rise in violent crimes against women. Though it's not available to the public yet, IVF specialists can select for other traits as well, including eye and hair color. Most scientists are advocating caution towards the use of CRISPR, but it seems only a matter of time until its use becomes accepted. As of yet, we can't carry a baby to term outside of a human body, as described in Brave New World, but our ability to edit DNA means we may soon have the power to create the kinds of humans Huxley describes. He, Jian Shi, calls his experiment gene surgery, likening it to any other medical procedure. He says a loving parent wouldn't select for eye color or IQ, but only prevent disease. But why not select for these traits? Why not give your child every advantage? Why is that not what a loving parent would do? Many people laud gene editing as the ability to control our own evolution and propel human development forward. But I wonder what this means for those who are left behind. What about societies that don't possess this kind of technology or parents who choose not to use it? In such a future, would any of us here tonight be good enough to be born? Even Jennifer Dudna, one of the scientists who discovered CRISPR, is concerned about the potential uses of this technology. She describes a dream that Hitler came to her wearing a pig's face and asked her to teach him to use the technology. What kind of ethical dilemmas will we face with increasing power to change our children before they're born? Will our regard for the weak still continue if we can edit weakness away? So number two, behavioral conditioning. Besides altering humans physically before birth, the world state also alters them psychologically after birth. In the world state, each caste is taught to love its position through behavioral conditioning. In the conditioning center, it's not about your hair, <laughs> Delta <laughs> babies are shown flowers and books, then given electric shocks when they try to touch them. This will cause them to instinctively avoid books and flowers in the future, which is only a pursuit for upper caste, not lower caste. As children sleep, they're subjected to recordings that teach them to be glad of their station in life. Here's an example. Alpha children wear gray. They work much harder than we do because they're so frightfully clever. I'm really awfully glad I'm a beta because I don't work so hard. And then we are much better than gammas and deltas. Gammas are stupid. They all wear green, and Delta children wear khaki. Oh no, I don't want to play with Delta children. And Epsilons are still worse. They're too stupid to be able to read or write. Besides, they wear black, which is such a beastly color. I'm so glad I'm a beta. And that, put in the director sententiously, that is the secret of happiness and virtue, liking what you've got to do. All conditioning aims at that, making people like their unescapable social destiny. Individually, individuality is too painful and inefficient. People aren't forced to do things they hate, but rather altered to love their lives. 
In Brave New World Revisited, Huxley comments on the research of B.F. Skinner, who was alive at the time of him writing that book. Skinner was a highly influential psychologist who popularized behaviorism. Behaviorism teaches that people are mostly a product of their environment of external stimuli. Though we rarely recognize it, behavioral conditioning is alive and well today. The creators of ads and social media are very familiar with human neurological functions and use them to their advantage. We're constantly manipulated by invisible forces that cater to our desires, or create desires we never even knew that we had. Skinner experimented with pigeons by rewarding them with food when they pecked a button. If they were rewarded all the time, they pecked consistently. But if they were rewarded only sometimes, they pecked even more frantically. The same principle can be applied to slot machines, which are highly addictive, and to social media. When we don't know whether we'll win, we keep pulling the lever or checking our phones. This is proven <laughs> to have a highly addictive quality. We also know that sites like Facebook curate the content they show us by what we've engaged with before. What we like, we keep seeing more of. We aren't challenged by different viewpoints. Our own biases just become more and more entrenched. These platforms are driven by money, not altruism. They want to give us what we want, not what we need. And they don't want us to ever be truly satisfied, or we'd stop wanting what they have to give. We'd stop buying. They aim to make us dependent, not set us free. B.F. Skinner said, as scientific explanation becomes more and more comprehensive, the contribution which may be claimed by the individual himself appears to approach zero. Man's vaunted creative powers, his achievements in art, science, and morals, his capacity to choose and our right to hold him responsible for the consequences of his choice, none of these is conspicuous in the new scientific self-portrait. Huxley comments, in a word, Shakespeare's plays were not written by Shakespeare, nor even by Bacon or the Earl of Oxford. They were written by Elizabethan England. The dance between environment and other causes of behavior is complicated. We often argue that we're only the product of our environment and our conditioning. My upbringing made me do it, we say, or my socioeconomic status is to blame. I hear this all the time and I say these things myself. <laughs> I don't say my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she does. <laughs> These can definitely be factors in why we make the choices we do, but humans are much more complex. We don't live in the world state just yet. Though it can be scary to see how our brains are getting hacked online, we still have the ability to say no, to have self-control, and to create different pathways in our brains by making different choices. But this requires not being enslaved to our desires. We have to stop pecking on the button. This relates to directly towards consumerism, which is the third category. In Brave New World, we see this constant satiation of desire through consumerism. The citizens are taught to treat their material goods as disposable. One behavioral conditioning recording played to children repeats, I do love having new clothes, but old clothes are beastly. We always throw away old clothes. Ending is better than mending. Ending is better than mending. Ending is better than mending. <laughs> this focus on consumption leads to an emphasis on whatever is most convenient. Efficiency and mass production are key, as instituted by Henry Ford, the deified figure of the world state. On his trip to America, Huxley had found and read an autobiography of Ford and been alarmed by these principles, which he saw applied throughout America. 
we see the veneration of Ford demonstrated throughout the novel by the humorous use of the name Ford in place of Lord, his Fordship, oh my Ford, unfordly behavior, etc. <laughs> Ethical concerns are shelved in favor of a stable economy. The lower castes are kept working in factories, and the upper castes are told to keep buying new things. Mustafa Mon says, industrial civilization is only possible when there's no self-denial. Self-indulgence up to the very limits imposed by hygiene and economics. Otherwise, the wheels stop turning. In predicting the future, what Huxley didn't foresee is the rise of artificial intelligence and other technologies that may one day, and in some cases already do, perform the tasks he describes the Epsilon cast doing. Nevertheless, our system of mass production in sweatshops in developing countries seems very similar to what he describes. If it's cheap and trendy, we'll buy it, no questions asked. Huxley writes in Brave New World Revisited, in an age of advanced technology, inefficiency is a sin against the Holy Ghost. In other words, the only unforgivable sin is moving too slow. In Brave New World, the government gives citizens the illusion of choice. You can sleep with whomever you choose. You can take drugs whenever you choose. You can buy new clothes whenever you choose and throw the old ones away. Identity is created through consuming. World state citizens are taught to pursue a narrow kind of personal freedom through consumerism. Clothes, especially Leninas, are described at length. And the zipper is a big fascination in the society. The children even play a game called Hunt the Zipper. It's not hard to extend this to today's world. Advertising constantly tells us that if we buy new things or even have new experiences, we ourselves will be made new. Fashion changes constantly so that we'll keep buying the trends. We're told that we're creating ourselves by our own free choice, but in fact, we're being manipulated by advertising. Many of these supposedly different products come from the same mother companies anyways, <laughs> if you've ever been to the grocery store and thought you were making a meaningful choice and then looked to see that it was actually all from the same place. Massive conglomerates create the illusion that we can choose our identities by consuming unique products that express our individual selves. Nike will make us brave. Patagonia will make us ethical. Coke will make us popular. In trying to become significant, we instead become more like everyone else. Social media platforms encourage us to express our individual selves, but we end up curating ourselves based on what we think others want to see. People start to look more and more similar. These companies are concerned with profits, not with individuals. We look to them for a sense of identity, but all they can give us is an illusion, not an actual relationship. Consumerism as identity ends up consuming us. So number four, sexuality. One of the primary ways the citizens of the world state are given the illusion of freedom is through sexuality. In the world state, the family has been dissolved. The idea of a home is shocking, and mother and father are considered dirty words. Procreation is as immoral as it gets, not because of the sexual act, but because pregnancy and birth are considered disgusting relics of an uncivilized past. Mustafa Mond describes the horrors of the concept of home. And home was as squalid psychically as physically. Physically, it was a rabbit hole, a midden, hot with the frictions of tightly packed life, reeking with emotion. What suffocating intimacies, what dangerous, insane, obscene relationships between the members of the family group. 
Maniacally, the mother brooded over her children, her children, brooded over them like a cat over its kittens, but a cat that could talk, a cat that could say, my baby, my baby, over and over again, my baby, and oh, oh, at my breast, the little hands, the hunger, and, hmm. And that's the end of the talk. And Any questions? <laughs> my pages are out of order. Oh, no. Hold that thought. Okay, well, that's the end of that quote. <laughs> Can I have your copy? Thank you. Ah, yes, okay. That's not the end of that quote. <laughs> and that unspeakable agonizing pleasure, till at last my baby sleeps. My baby sleeps with a bubble of white milk at the corner of its mouth. My little baby sleeps. Yes, said Mustafa Mond, nodding his head. You may well shudder. Sexually, open relationships are considered virtuous in this society. Monogamy is vilified and celibacy is unheard of. One of the favorite mantras of the characters is, everyone belongs to everyone else. Lenina's friend reprimands her for sleeping with only one man for four months. I really do think you ought to be careful. It's such horribly bad form to go on and on like this with one man. At 40 or 35, it wouldn't be so bad. But at your age, Lenina, no, it really won't do. And you know how strongly the DHC objects to anything intense or long drawn. Four months of Henry Foster without having another man? Why, he'd be furious if he knew. Lenina recognizes the director's adherence to the moral code of non-monogamy by noting that he had patted her on the behind that very afternoon the strictest conventionality. Even children are taught to experiment sexually with each other. Unlimited sexual expression is elevated to a form of religion in this society. By mandate, citizens gather together at the Fordson Community Singery to anticipate Ford's second coming, which culminates in a pseudo-spiritual orgy meant as a unifying experience of release. Citizens are warned of the dangers of not satisfying their desires immediately. This is a quote. Impulse arrested spills over, and the flood is feeling, the flood is passion, the flood is even madness. It depends on the force of the current, the height and strength of the barrier. The unchecked stream flows smoothly down its appointed channels into a calm well-being. Feeling lurks in that interval of time between desire and its consummation. Shorten that interval break down all those old unnecessary barriers. Feelings are dangerous. Immediate self-gratification keeps everyone stupid and calm. At the time Brave New World was published, the sexual revolution had yet to take place. Reliable birth control was still a distant dream. And this is a dream that Huxley pines for in Brave New World Revisited, as he bemoans the constraints of excess population. Huxley got his wish, at least in North America, but the widespread use of birth control has had the effect of severing sexuality from reproduction in many instances, just as Huxley predicted. Even married couples often forgo having any children, relegating sex to mutual pleasure. The definition of family has rapidly changed, and now we speak of guardians rather than parents in many cases. We see Linda's ambivalence about raising John as her son. She both enjoys and neglects him and refuses to let him call her mother. 
His attachment to her and distraught feelings at her dying are shocking to the citizens of the world state. Today, support for open relationships and what's called ethical non-monogamy is growing. I spoke recently with a friend who implied that open relationships are more moral than monogamous ones because they force you to overcome jealousy and allow your partners to have their needs met. Interestingly, she has no interest in having an open relationship herself, and she cites her upbringing as the influencing factor. This echoes Mustafa Mond, who says, one believes things because one has been conditioned to believe them. It isn't a question of right or wrong, only conditioning. Freud popularized the idea of sexual repression, that sexuality must be expressed or it leads to stunted psychological growth. In this vision, sexual activity is necessary for individual flourishing. Increasingly, the language I hear around sexuality is of having your needs met. If you have a disability that prevents a romantic relationship, hiring a sex worker is having your needs met, as I heard someone talking about on CBC the other day. Having sex with people other than your spouse is having your needs met. The first priority is satisfying your own desires. Though today we often think of increased sexual expression as a sign of freedom, Huxley actually saw it as a product of a society in which individuals have less and less value. He wrote, as political and economic freedom diminishes, sexual freedom tends compensatingly to increase, and the dictator will do well to encourage that freedom. In conjunction with the freedom to daydream under the influence of dope and movies and the radio, it will help to reconcile his subjects to the servitude which is their fate. Could it be that our emphasis on unlimited sexual expression is actually leading us into servitude? that to remove the sharpness of longing is actually to remove our capacity for true feelings of connection and love. Huxley proposes that for things to be meaningful, they must come at a cost. Wendell Berry writes, it is odd that simply because of its sexual freedom, our time should be considered extraordinarily physical. In fact, our sexual revolution is mostly an industrial phenomenon in which the body is used as an idea of pleasure or a pleasure machine with the aim of freeing natural pleasure from natural consequence. Like any other industrial em enterprise, industrial sexuality seeks to conquer nature by exploiting it and ignoring the consequences, by denying any connection between nature and spirit or body and soul and by evading social responsibility. Pleasure machines is exactly what the citizens of the world state have become. Number five, aging. Sexuality self-fulfillment runs up sharply against a natural barrier, and that is age. And old age has no place in the world state. In the world state, advanced medical technology keeps citizens from showing signs of age once they reach their prime. When Linda appears in London, people are shocked and disgusted by her appearance. In her 40s, gross. <laughs> The children who see her in the hospital for dying are fascinated. And I quote, They had never seen a face like hers before, had never seen a face that was not youthful and taut-skinned, a body that had ceased to be slim and upright. At 44, Linda seemed a monster of flaccid and distorted senility. Alcohol will do that too. <laughs> Today we have developed a similar attitude toward aging. We see aging as the body's revolt and we consider it revolting. 
Fanatical dieting and elaborate beauty rituals gave way to plastic surgery, anything to hide old age. When I drive 20 minutes north to the retirement town of Sydney, I see a billboard that advertises aging gracefully. How do we age gracefully, you may ask. At a cosmetic surgery clinic, the billboard instructs. Once I drove past and saw that someone had spray painted over gracefully and written naturally. The billboard was very quickly repaired. <laughs> the horrors of aging naturally, naturally forgotten. <laughs> Some have such hatred toward the limitations of the human body that they hope to escape it altogether. Famous inventor Ray Kurzweil takes reams of supplements every day to fight off aging with the hope that one day he'll be able to upload his consciousness to the internet and live forever. He's part of a group called the Transhumanists who seek to transcend humanity's physical being by merging with machines. Kurzweil also hopes one day to create an AI who's a copy of his dead father. He has boxes and boxes of his father's old papers and information so that one day he can resurrect him through technology. In his refusal to accept his own fear of death and grief over the loss of his father, Kurzweil views time's effect on our bodies as the enemy and technology as our salvation. The body, and indeed the physical world, impinges too much on our personal happiness. Human limitations are of no value and should only be transcended by whatever means possible. The aging body is an insult to humanity. In this view, rather than treat old age with dignity and learn from those who have gone before us, we often treat the elderly as people with nothing to contribute to society. Though there are good nursing homes, many seem more like quarantine zones. As is portrayed in Brave New World, in many of these establishments, drugs are plentiful and the TV is constantly on. I've heard many horror stories of the impersonal or even abusive care elderly people have received. In some nursing homes, robot seals have become companions for the elderly instead of people. We have little loose use for those who no longer work and who can't keep up with rapid changes in technology. And we simply don't want to be reminded of our own mortality. Staying happy means insulating ourselves from anyone who is suffering or vulnerable. Having visited older people in two different hospitals recently, I realized my own discomfort around physical pain and limitations. I've been blessed to be healthy my whole life. I'm relatively young. And it's difficult to imagine my body no longer working the way it does now. When I see those who are sick and elderly, I'm reminded that my time too will come. And it's uncomfortable. I'm sorry for making you uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Those who are suffering are now in Canada and elsewhere legally allowed to end their own lives. In Canada, this is restricted to those who have a serious and incurable disease, illness, or disability and are in a state of decline that they consider intolerable. Their death also has to be reasonably foreseeable. Currently, medical medically assisted dying accounts for 1% of deaths in Canada. Mm. Wow. In the Netherlands, where medically assisted death has been legal since 2002, 4% of deaths in 2016 were medically assisted. And not only for incurable illness, but also for psychiatric disorders and dementia. Mm. These cases are complicated and call for compassion. But the implicit message is that suffering makes life meaningless. And we should have the choice to end any suffering we consider too much to bear. In a society where we could all be perpetually young, what might be lost? Is there any place for or value in the limitations of old age? Or do elderly people become less and less human as their bodies break down? 
death brings up the deeper questions of life. And to stay happy, we have to avoid death. Number six, entertainment. There are many varieties of entertainment in the big new world, including travel, dining out, and music concerts with really terrible lyrics. But the two primary forms of entertainment are sports and the feelies, as opposed to movies. Popular sports in the brave new world include electromagnetic golf and centrifugal bumble puppy. <laughs> Bernard is considered odd and antisocial because he has no interest in sports, which is pretty much the way non-sporty men are treated in a lot of areas of society today. Sports, as one friend pointed out recently, aren't as worshipped on Vancouver Island as in many other places in North America. But I had been to watch the Super Bowl with Clark, and that was enough. <laughs> in case you're wondering why Clark had to watch the Super Bowl with me, of all people, that was before he had friends. <laughs> Here. <laughs> um, and I've also lived in Boston, where sports are definitely elevated to the status of religion. Athletes are our heroes, and sports teams are a source of identity, plastered all over our clothes. First day I ever went to Labrie, you may remember this, <laughs> was in June 2011. It was the day of the final playoff game between the Vancouver Canucks and the Boston Bruins. On the ferry from Vancouver Island, I was surrounded by chanting Canucks fans who were downing shots of liquor and maple syrup. In Vancouver, it was a mad sea of green, white, and blue. When I finally made it alive to Canadian Libri on Bowen Island, I was so relieved. I shyly opened the door to find the hockey game on the big screen and everyone's faces painted with red, white, and blue. Sorry, not red, white, and blue. That's America. Green, white, and blue. I almost turned around, but I didn't think I could make it back through Vancouver alive. <laughs> Might not have. <laughs> that night, the Canucks lost, and their fans rioted, smashing windows, looting stores, and setting 17 cars on fire. Well, I remember hearing about it, and I laughed because it sounded so unbelievable. We didn't do that in Canada. We're super nice. They apologized. <laughs> yeah, they apologized. <laughs> Some people point out that the people doing the looting and that weren't the actual hockey fans. But. Oh. It, it was well, right around the Arab Spring, right? And so, so there was a, a, a picture that was circling around Facebook and, and emails and such. It was, you know, uh, Libya, they fight against uh, Gaddafi, and, and in Egypt, they're fighting against Mubarak, and, and you know, and then they went, and in Canada, they lost a hockey team, <laughs> a hockey game. Yes. yes, Grant, I think you make a valid point, but there definitely is all kinds of stuff like that around sporting events all over the place. Yes. Um, but I do think sports have their place. Mm -hmm. Paul uses metaphors of an athlete's discipline, discipline in scripture. But they can also become a kind of religion, a distraction. The Roman Empire kept the masses satisfied with bread and circuses. As long as they were fed and entertained, they didn't question the government. Citizens of the world state also find entertainment in attending the feelies. Cinemas where the action is not only visual, but also physically stimulating through the means of electric currents in your chair. The film Lenina Takes John to See involves a dramatic helicopter chase and sex scenes, which sounds pretty much like our movies today. <laughs> the feelies are something like glor a glorified form of pornography. With the advent of the internet, porn has become widespread in our society and is only increasing in use and in violent content. The average age a child is exposed to porn is 11. Porn addictions are more and more common and can have serious effects on brain chemistry. Yet, the consumption of porn is considered fairly normal in our society. We've also glorified the binge-watching of TV shows. 
On online dating sites, people frequently list Netflix as their primary interest, which is a really good way to stand out from the crowd. Mm -hmm. I myself may have watched The Office for five hours straight on Saturday, <laughs> or I may not. <laughs> Access to whatever shows we want, whenever we want, is cheap and easy. Frictionless. That's a word I hear all the time. It's pretty hard to resist. I think there's a place for light entertainment. Not everything has to be deep and meaningful all the time. But we rarely seem to ask whether being constantly entertained is good for us. I'll always remember this one Libri student who told me, I don't want to die distracted. She knew she could waste her whole life skipping from one entertainment to the next, never really thinking about the deeper things in life. She knew how to have fun, but she wanted to engage with what matters, and that took <coughs> discomfort and discipline. Number seven, drugs. Perhaps the primary means of distraction and pleasure in the world state is the ubiquitous government-sponsored use of mood-altering drugs. Each citizen is supplied with rations of the drug soma, a Greek word that means body. In small doses, this wonder drug works to stave off any anger or depression, with citizens quoting, a gram is better than a dam. <laughs> in larger doses, people can take soma holidays and escape into pleasant hallucinations. The drug has no unpleasant or dangerous side effects. John's mother, Linda, longs for a return to civilization, primarily so she can indulge in the effects of Soma again. Yeah. Soma enables people to get along with each other and remain peaceful whatever their lot in life. There is no more need for learning virtue the hard way. And Mustafa Mon tells John, anybody can be virtuous now. You can carry at least half of your morality about in a bottle. Christianity without tears, that's what Soma is. John counters, what you need is something with tears for a change. Nothing costs enough here. We have yet to create a drug that can have all the effects of Soma. Drugs such as heroin and meth are still dangerous, illegal, and looked down on by most of society. However, our use of prescription drugs has skyrocketed since the publication of Brave New World. Johan Hari's book Lost Connections looks into the causes and cures of depression. Hari began taking antidepressants when he was 18. Eventually, he began to think about how his doctor had missed asking him the underlying questions about his condition. Questions such as, what is your life like? What's making you sad? What changes could be made to make your life more tolerable? The shortcut was to prescribe pills. I saw this in action myself when I went to the doctor with a close friend who had struggled for years with an eating disorder. Finally, she'd agreed to see someone, and I hoped this would help her uncover the roots of the problem. Instead, after just a few minutes' conversation, the doctor prescribed an antidepressant and moved on, with no discussion of possible side effects. And I really want to be clear here, I've seen antidepressants make a huge difference in the lives of many people that I love, so I'm not against them. Rightly used, they can save lives. But I do believe it's a major concern if we rely on pills to the exclusion of identifying factors other than chemical ones. Are we getting at the underlying problems? Thoreau wrote that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Though antidepressants and other prescription mood-altering drugs can be hugely beneficial, we can't reduce our pain to a mere chemical imbalance. We have to ask whether a changing society can also be blamed. One writer calls out capitalism as a contributing factor in rising rates of depression. This is what she says. There never will be a chemical fix for the misery of a highly individualized society 
or community that has lost any sort of connection with itself. We have set up a society that economically works for the benefit of the so-called 1%, and which increasingly medicates society's losers so as to keep them from asking the sort of questions that might challenge this whole structure of misery. The political questions that are raised here, from globalization to the resentments <coughs> that bubble to the surface on social media, all go far beyond the reach of the next prescription. Yeah, maybe you guys are ardent capitalists here, I don't know. <laughs> but I think it's hard to deny that our Western society has become increasingly fractured with broken families and little support in our communities. What are the reasons for this? Our reliance on prescription drugs may allow us to avoid asking hard questions about difficult issues, both personal and systemic. Superficial happiness is not the same as healing. Now Huxley could foresee the dangers of widespread drug use, and yet he was drawn to the mind-altering effects. Linda's death doped up on Soma is eerily reminiscent of Huxley's own death, high on LSD. Number eight, solitude. This is the last one. Another means the world state uses to keep people satiated is to never let them be alone. Bernard is considered odd and antisocial because he spends his spare time in solitude. Solitude is a dangerous state that causes people to become moody and think about dangerous things. John tells Mustafa Mon that it's natural to think of God when you're alone. Mond replies, people are never alone now. We make them hate solitude, and we arrange their lives so that it's almost impossible for them to ever have it. Solitude is almost equally irksome to us today. Sociologist Sherry Turkle, in her book Reclaiming Conversation, discusses how we've lost the ability both to have honest conversation and to be alone. With phones constantly in hand, we're never really together or alone. Instead, we're alone together. Our minds are constantly redirected to the world of our devices, distracted from any overly painful thoughts or feelings. Because of this, we never really learn to know ourselves or our neighbors. Turkle writes, the psychoanalytic tradition asks us to cultivate both the capacity for solitude and the capacity for disciplined self-reflection. There are many things that discourage us, Sometimes it is just the hope for a simpler way to understand ourselves. It would be nice if troubles could be cured by the right pill or the right mantra or the right behavioral adjustment. In other words, we want the brave new world, not the complicated reality. Turkle emphasizes the necessity of solitude for creating proper boundaries between us and others. In solitude, we learn about ourselves and see other people as distinct from us. We learn to be alone without being lonely. Paul Tillich writes, language has created the word loneliness to express the pain of being alone. And it has created the word solitude to express the glory of being alone. Solitude is where creativity emerges from boredom. Rather than being antisocial, solitude is the birthplace of empathy. The citizens of the world state have only learned to treat themselves as members of an impersonal conglomerate and thus treat others merely as an extension of themselves. They've never learned the glory of being alone. So those are the eight areas in which our society perils that of brave new world. Reproductive technology, behavioral conditioning, consumerism, sexuality, aging, entertainment, drugs, and solitude. And I'm, now I'm gonna talk about the Christian response. This book still feels fresh today because it points to so much of what we already experience, as well as what we may become. 
in the face of these dire predictions, how can the Christian respond to the society Huxley envisions? I think that we first have to ask ourselves, did Jesus come to make us happy? Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. What is this full life Jesus promises? Well, we understand this by looking at the kind of life that Jesus lived. We see that he enjoyed feasting and good friendships, but he also suffered from his testing in the wilderness to his final death on the cross. He was always clear that to follow him would mean death. The symbol of Christianity is a cross. In Brave New World, the cross has the top cut off to turn it into a T, which represents the Model T car. <laughs> Lenina wears the symbol around her neck. It's actually a zipper shaped like a T. Suffering is replaced with consumerism. Even as Christians, we can preach a prosperity gospel. If we just pray the right prayers, God will give us health and wealth and the American dream or the Canadian dream. When life doesn't go as planned, we feel hurt and betrayed. Jesus is conformed to our own desires rather than our desires being conformed to Jesus. If we actually look at Jesus's life, we understand that it's through self-sacrificial love and servanthood that God redeems the world. We shouldn't glorify suffering for suffering's sake. Suffering is a symptom of a broken world and yet, God uses these painful experiences to show us reality and brings, them closer to him, to, brings us closer to him and each other. Self-denial is necessary to shape us into full human beings. What we think will make us happy often turns out to have disastrous consequences. I think all of us, myself included, have experienced this. Like way too much ice cream. <laughs> that too. We only know what we want, not what we need. And often we don't even know the true shape of our wants because we satisfy the first pangs before digging deeper. As we learn to sacrifice even the things we most want, our desires become reshaped towards what God has for us. One theme that runs through Brave New World and through most dystopian literature is the question of human freedom. What connection does freedom have with happiness? The world state has created a controlled society where everybody's happy now. People feel free. They don't know any different than what they're conditioned to believe. But is this feeling the same as the reality? For humans to be happy, the government has to have increasing control. The government controls the distribution of drugs, the restriction of literature, and the production of babies. The citizens feel they're free, but in fact, they're almost completely controlled by the state. Huxley writes, the most important Manhattan projects of the future will be vast government-sponsored inquiries into what the politicians and participating scientists will call the problem of happiness. In other words, the problem of making people love their servitude. John the Savage sees the servitude for what it is and fights against it. In their private conversation, Mustafa Mon says, we prefer to do things comfortably. John replies, but I don't want comfort. I want God. I want poetry. I want real danger. I want freedom. I want goodness. I want sin. In fact, said Mustafa Mon, you're claiming the right to be unhappy. All right then, said the savage defiantly, I'm claiming the right to be unhappy. Not to mention the right to grow old and ugly and impotent, the right to have syphilis and cancer, the right to have too little to eat, the right to be lousy, the right to live in constant apprehension of what may happen tomorrow, the right to catch typhoid, the right to be tortured by unspeakable pains of every kind. There was a long silence. I claim them all, the savage said at last. Mustafa Mon shrugged his shoulders. You're welcome, 
Freedom looks to John like the full human experience in all its terror and glory. It's not wrong to want our lives to be easier. But if comfort becomes our primary goal, we never mature. The citizens of the world state are told to act like infants. Lenina says, never put off till tomorrow the fun you can have today. <laughs> fun isn't bad, but it shouldn't be our end goal. The pursuit of happiness as an end goal only serves to make us less human. To satiate our senses, we sacrifice the breadth and depth of the human experience. Huxley writes in Brave New World Revisited, without freedom, human beings cannot become fully human. And that freedom is therefore supremely valuable. But we're easily distracted. And Huxley says, give me liberty or give me death becomes give me television and hamburgers, but don't bother me with the responsibilities of liberty. In our own society, freedom is often equated with being able to satisfy our own needs however we choose. But Jesus says that the truth sets us free. And truth can be difficult. It means responsibility. It requires sacrifice. Unless we're willing to accept that true freedom means accepting the burden of things we don't always like, we'll remain babies for life. So here are some practical suggestions for things that we can do to not end up as citizens of the world state and practical ways that we can live full human lives. And you can probably tell me others in our discussion period. There's just a few I came up with. So first, engage with meaningful art. Surprise, that comes from me. Um, so in, in Brave New World, citizens are protected from works of art that would disturb them with the truth of the human condition. Mustafa Mann says, you've got to choose between happiness and what people used to call high art. Art has always been the expression of what a culture most values. It's the arc of human experience. From it, we can learn about our past, present, and future. It can also shape us into thoughtful, engaged individuals. Read books that have shaped our culture. Go to art galleries and spend time with masterpieces. Listen to music that doesn't, doesn't just numb or titillate you, but causes you to experience human life more deeply. Watch films that take some work to understand. There is a time for escape, too, but that time isn't every moment of our lives. We have to push ourselves outside of our comfort zone and let ourselves be disturbed by what doesn't come easily to us. Finley Peter Dunn wrote that it's the job of newspapers to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> the same has been said of art. Expose yourself to thoughtful art and ideas that make you feel uncomfortable in the places you've grown numb. This feeling may be the pain of frostbitten skin coming back to life. Number two, my second recommendation is to practice solitude. This is a very difficult for most of us, probably especially us millennials. I just snuck into the millennial uh, generation. Solitude is uncomfortable at first. I had to banish my phone from my bedroom and get an alarm clock instead. Even so, I struggle not to rely on my phone every morning as a way to feel connected to and therefore validated by others. Sometimes it really feels like I'm not a person until others want and notice me. But this is something that each of us must push against. We need to spend time away from people both in person and virtually. Limit your hours of technology use. Take a solo retreat. Go for a walk without your phone. Eventually, the frustration and angst will begin to ease and you'll meet yourself again, and maybe even God. My third recommendation is to treat other people as full human beings and expect the same for yourself. Other people aren't objects for your own use. 
and neither are you an object for theirs. As much as possible, quit marketing yourself and buying other people's curated versions of themselves. Ask each other difficult questions and be vulnerable. Bear with each other when the going gets rough. Mm. We have to assert human dignity. Humans aren't merely cogs in the machine whose only purpose is to produce economic benefits. We need regard for the weak, the disabled, the elderly, the sick, and the poor. We need to see others as individuals created in the image of God, deserving of full respect and care, whatever their status is in life. My fourth recommendation is to restrain your desires when they don't lead you to become the kind of person you want to be. Self-discipline isn't the same as repression. Think about how what you do each day is shaping you, and consider whether that's the shape you envision for your life. Practice something that takes hard work, whether learning a new skill or conquering an old habit. The season that we're in now in the church year, Lent, is a good time each year to consider how we're being controlled by our own desires. Such times of fasting can teach us to rely on God to reorder our desires through his grace. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that our desires can be so transformed. As John points out to Mond, God gives us a reason for self-denial. But the self-denial isn't suffering for suffering's sake. Jesus suffered and died for the joy set before him, which is our salvation. Does God want us to be happy? God isn't anti-happiness. But ultimately, he wants us to be filled with joy, which is much deeper. The psalmist writes, All my longings lie open before you. Lord, my sighing is not hidden from you. God knows what we long for, the places where our needs are unmet. Our tears are precious to him. Whatever the days ahead bring, we can rest in our identity in Christ. And one day, we will find true satisfaction, rather than cheap pleasure, in unity with him. That's the future for humanity. That's our brave new world. So that's what I have for you tonight. And now we can have some time of discussion. So any comments or questions would be greatly appreciated. Going all the way back to the beginning, the GMP, genetically modified people. I think that's got to be one of the toughest subjects to talk about because if you say to somebody, well, do you wish you were born with some kind of a defect or are you glad you got cancer? <clears throat> but I think if we take that away, if we're all perfect, you know, like me, <laughs> then it's like too easy. You know, there's there's no um, uh, life doesn't become precious if we're all gonna live to be 95 years old and then we're just gonna drop off. If everything's perfect until then, it, it, it's not important anymore. Well, let me let me ask you then, because you dealt with going through physical pain for a long time. With, with and that. cancer. Yeah. And yeah. so how do you feel like those experiences have shaped who you are as a person? It's a tough one because I don't really feel a lot like a different person than I was before. Hmm. I don't think it shaped me. Hmm. Um, I dealt with it. I was in a unique situation that I have tremendous support. Um, so yeah, it didn't make me bitter or angry and it didn't make me 
a better person, I don't think. So. <clears throat> Did you feel like that was a choice that you could have had to become bitter and angry or a temptation? Well, I think some people do. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're dealing with daily pain, yeah, I think you can make it. I guess I was for a while. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's probably true. Before I got into the drugs and the wheelchair and all that kind of stuff, I was just a miserable person to be around. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I guess that's a factor. I was thinking um, in your lecture that in these various pursuits of happiness, how much it rides on these individual wishes. And one of the parallels I see is that uh, when we pursue our own happiness, pursue our own fulfillment, uh, we end up abdicating our responsibility for the common good. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we do that, we end up um, investing the state with power. Because mm -hmm. we, we no longer have these natural institutions that we form when we are able to form corporately. So it's interesting that, you know, um, Brave New World sees that state control doesn't have to come by fear mm -hmm. or as in 1984, but it can be supply the luxuries. Mm -hmm. You know, Charles Taylor in his book, Ethics of Authenticity, said that, you know, uh, if we, if the government gives us the luxuries we want, then we will not question its power. Uh, and it seems that that is really what our society is built on, is constant call for rights mm -hmm. and usually rights to control my life in the way that I want because that's what makes me happy mm -hmm. fulfilled and all this is just feeding into not liberty mm -hmm. but actually leading us into a, a type of enslavement to the state mm -hmm. that we have given it mm -hmm. so that's yeah that's really helpful and very accurate observation mm -hmm. yeah we don't, and we don't even see most of those things happening. <laughs> the corporations that are running things, or yeah, big business. Big Did problems. Huxley was he afraid of world power? Yeah, pretty um, much. Yeah. And what was behind that for him? Uh, what was his antidote? Yeah, I mean, he talks about some of his antidotes in in Brave New World Revisited. Um, birth control being one <laughs> to decrease the surplus population, <laughs> as Dickens says. Um, but what that's ironic because. Yeah, birth control be, can be a way of government's control. Yeah. Um, because if it's removing the national institution of, you know, the woman and the man having the baby in that mm -hmm. book, that's a way that the power, that's the way the state has power. So Yeah, anyway, it's really, sorry. it's quite odd because in a few of the things he recommends, you kind of see this tension between what what he shows in this, in Brave New World, and then sort of his own peers. And so he recommends birth control and then also shows in Brave New World how that, can be abused also. Mm. So it's quite interesting to sort of see that. Um, he also talks about move, moving into the countryside and starting smaller communities. He mm. just says the metropolis is really harmful for people because um, mm. you're just kind of a faceless, you know, a number. Um, and also that there should be restrictions around propaganda use by government mm. and things like behavioral conditioning because he really saw this as becoming, you know, very widespread in, in things like sleep conditioning and things mm -hmm. like that, which we don't have, but there are other ways, I think, that we use mm -hmm. those things. So, like, politi he said politicians should have limited amount of money they can spend on their campaigns and stuff like that. 
Um, and I think we've seen <laughs> some of the reasons for um, his concerns too. Uh, yeah, so, so, so having restrictions around how, what the government can do, but also making personal choices um, to educate yourself and to, to remove yourself from inhuman environments. Mm. Some of it, yeah. And, and stepping up food, again, like stepping up food production to deal with the population. Uh, but then, like that seems to be a product also of this sort of mass production thing. So it's it's mm. it's complicated. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Mm. Or just you know, do acid. Mm. <laughs> that, that works too. <laughs> yeah, Cody. I just wonder. This is probably a question that can't get answered, but Great. I wonder within the novel control is exercised in the manner that you describe but in real life I wonder if that level of control can actually be achieved because when we look at happiness or or versus fulfillment um, we don't always know what satisfies us we don't know what fulfills us and then when we get it we're often dissatisfied and unfulfilled um, that's in our society but if you look at countries like China for example um, on one hand, they're going through this kind of neo-futurism kind of movement with, uh, I'm just chucking words together here, but um, just with the space program and a lot of developments, there's this push towards futurism, like existed in America, but at the same time, there's a tension between that and um, the spread of Christianity and the... the um, push away from communism so there's this and my quite and it's not just about China but my question is like which one will win right the embracing of the future and technology and nationhood and nationalism or or you know as prosperity increases so does self-awareness so does the desire to uh, get away from the city to to seek the environment and so forth and I see that in America too like there's there's in society there's a push and pull there's an economy at work and culture and just when you think you have control over things um, society it kind of it it, um, it readjusts like I, I just wonder what control looks like long term like in that manner if, if people are subdued chemically they will become dissatisfied just like we're finding now like it's I'm seeing I'm finish my rant here but like even as a teacher the new counterculture it's described is to straighten up and apply right like a lot of especially young guys they're finding that the rebelliousness of today is to get a job to <laughs> save money and not listen to the crap that a lot of the schools are pushing and go and get a trade like that's the new <laughs> punk rock of today so I might and I just leave that I gave a lot of examples but like what does control really look like can it last and what ultimately are humans seeking in a way that yeah. will be lasting that's yeah. a that's a really great question and something that i thought a lot about while sort of preparing this lecture um and i mean it's a like this novel is a simplification uh and a, and a satire too so i don't think he's sort of proposing that this is necessarily like a thing that could actually happen it's more kind of I think it's trying to hold a mirror to society and where some of our um, predilections will lead us but I think yeah I would agree with you I, I 
<laughs> I mean, unless we can genetically alter people so much that we alter out their longing for transcendence, which I just, I don't think that's possible. Um, I think there always will be something that pushes us to look for more. And, and there are characters in this novel that do seek those things. Not like John, John is raised with some forms of religion, but, um, but Bernard and, and more so Helmholtz, like Helmholtz talks about <laughs> seeing so feeling that something's missing. And he has this gift of writing, but he doesn't know what to do with it other than write propaganda. But he feels like there's something that he's meant to write. And then when he encounters Shakespeare, he's like, mind blown, right? Like, this is, like, he laughs at him because he doesn't understand what this big deal is about, like, the agony around romantic relationships and all this stuff. He's laughing, but at the same time, like, wow, this guy was the best propagandist ever. <laughs> and, like, and so I, I think that um, there will always be those people, like, in any society who are longing for something more than, than what they're given. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's why we see these pushbacks against any kind of regime. Um, yeah, does anyone else have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so you kind of talked about, um, <coughs> so the Christianity without, <coughs> without tears. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I would say a part of me just like, yeah, this cool, you know, just, I don't know, because, I mean, I can share it to you uh, before about the fears of pursuing God, because, you know, it's pretty hard sometimes. Uh, so what's, what's wrong about like, Christianity without tears? Mm -hmm. what, what's wrong with that? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, so, so he's, so Mustafa Manzo's Christianity without tears in reference to the drug, Soma. Yeah. so that people could consume this drug and it would keep them sedated so that they didn't like argue or react you know very strongly to anything so that's a very limited vision of what christianity yeah. is i would well, say i mean it's it's a it's a it's a marxian or it's a marxist uh interpretation of what christianity is right i mean you go it's the idea that the christianity is the opium of the masses mm -hmm. right so i mean you you, you it, that's the opium of the masses. Now opium is the opium of the masses. Yeah. I mean that's I mean that's I, I, how I understand. That's that. what Huxley says. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what Huxley's saying there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so literally the drugs become the new religion. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean I think that's that's explicitly not Christianity. But but yeah, I mean I mean I guess that's the point that I was kind of trying to to bring out is that. That Christianity does require self-sacrifice and self-denial, and that, and we see, see that in Jesus, and mm -hmm. like, and it's not about the pursuit of individual pleasure because we're called to be servants to each other, and that's gonna that's gonna require putting our own desires aside um, many times, and that is that is always gonna be hard as long as we have human nature to contend with. Um, so yeah, I mean, it sounds great if we can pop a pill and be and be yeah. awesome Christians, but um, yeah. I don't think that's the way that it works. I would add to that just to say if you have Christianity without tears you remove it of the prophetic of the critique mm -hmm. of culture um, I mean what you can see in mega churches throughout America you see Christianity without tears mm -hmm. um, and you, it just it gives license to all types of materialism mm -hmm. Uh, alongside a Christian message of like a therapeutic reductionism of Christianity mm -hmm. that they can have alongside their material wealth mm -hmm. without ever questioning what might be a virtuous way of living 
in regards to my money, which might call for sacrifice. In fact, it does call for um, to to put it up before before God and to say, "How might I be faithful with my money?" Which might cost me at times. Uh, it will cost you at times. How I do that with my time? How do I do this with these relationships? What do I do with my enemies? Do I love my enemy? In a Christianity without tears, no. Depends on what hockey jersey they're wearing. <laughs> and so I, I think Christianity without tears removes it of its prophetic critique of ourselves and of culture. Um, as you said, like we have a sinful condition, a, a condition where we do so, seek our own interest over others. And it seems like Christianity without tears is just giving way to just giving into whatever we want and blessing it with religion. Mm-hmm. It also seems like lament is also an important part of um, the mm-hmm. Christian response to the world and to really re- recognize the injustices that are going on, the places that are broken in the world in our own lives, and, and it's appropriate to respond with tears. And that's not, yeah, it's not exactly what the quote is talking about. It's talking more about struggling to be virtuous, but I think that. It, as we see how difficult that is and how, how much this society is broken around us, I think it's totally appropriate to respond with tears. And um, yeah, so I think we need that too. But I think <coughs> tears are also part of that life that he gives us, abundant life he gives us. It's part of being alive. Is the suffering and pain that validates mm. our existence and depth and mm. breadth. You know? mm-hmm. it's, it's part of the package of... Mm. Jesus was a man of sorrows, mm-hmm. and uh, informs our our daily sorrows by his compassion for us too. You know, so. Mm-hmm. so it's important, like John is saying, right? Mm-hmm. I want these things as difficult as they may be because that's mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can't really appreciate the highs in life without experiencing the lows, for sure. Because mm-hmm. if, if it's highs all the time, that's normal. Right. Right, and that's that's what they say in the society. You know, it's that 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 lack be- or that that experience between like having a desire and having it met. That's where feeling dangerous feeling is mm-hmm. is found. And so, to keep people just sort of at this kind of stable level, they can never have experience that sort of unmet longing. But that is mm-hmm. that is the experience of being human. <laughs> that um, yeah, to have desires and to sometimes have them unmet <laughs> or often really um, which is hard but so sh- so should I should I seek out to be disturbed allow yourself to be I think God will disturb you <laughs> he's, he's not nice and comfortable but it also but seems to like you know uh, uh, there was like you said Jesus there were moments of feasting Yes. You know, he was blamed to be a drunkard and a glutton, mm-hmm. sure. which means that he was, you know, uh, enjoying himself with tax collectors and sinners, yeah. uh, people that were marginalized by the Pharisees. Uh, and it seems that even in Ecclesiastes, it says, if you have experience, like life is hard, life is toilsome, life can seem meaningless at times, uh, but there's moments when things become clear and there is the enjoyment of the day, enjoyment of a relationship. And it said, receive those as gifts of God. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not happiness that I have attained, mm-hmm. but happiness that I receive as a gift. Okay. And somehow there's joy in the midst of suffering. I mean, and joy, that's, yeah, that's right. Somehow, but that's mm-hmm. a mystery. Yeah, that's true. But there's a joy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And I think those times of sorrow or, or difficulty, I think things are hard, like harder than you'd like them to be. In some ways, that should be telling you something as well. Like I always think of, as a nurse, think of when people are in pain, it's telling me something I need to try mm -hmm. to figure out. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so that sorrow or that um, hardship, what is that telling you? Is it something that you need to change or is it just that you're acknowledging that this world is not how it should be and what can you learn from that and how can you, um, you know, change, help change things? Um, so to kind of listen to those feelings and accept them that it's telling you something like this is not how it should be in the ideal world. It's not how it will be, maybe, uh, or it just might be giving you some direction as to where to go. Yeah. Just, oh. just to add to that too, um, um, oh yes, just as like a thought experiment, you think about um, like, I mean I've lived an interesting life, I mean it's, it's, it's it hasn't been, I mean I'm not, I, haven't, I didn't grow up as a child soldier in Uganda or anything like that, so I'm not, it's not like so dramatic, but if you look at people who have had life perfect, whatever that looks like, you just think, I have to be, well, I'll speak for myself, but I have to be grateful for some of the worst things that have happened in my life because I don't know what the alternative would be like, but if every, everything happened the way I ideally wanted it to, I don't know what use I would be to people. Like, typically when you look at people who've had life that way, they're not, I mean, I don't want to be mean, but they're not always the most compassionate or understanding, right? So, if, if you know, and maybe it's by the grace of God, you, you don't know the alternative, but maybe by the grace of God, certain things have happened in life and affected us in certain ways. I don't want to say that for anyone else, but for myself, because maybe I would be a much meaner person if my only prism for life was I'm at the top, I get what I want, I go to the best schools, everything is easy. I don't think I'd have a lot of space for other people, so mm -hmm. maybe some of that pain is uh, God's way of shuffling grace into our lives. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, I don't have a question, but I, I do something to say, and I wanted to build off what um, Clark originally said. Um, you know, I'm I'm at UVic. Uh, this is my first semester of, of uh, higher education, and uh, I'm and so one one of the things that I've been paying attention to, um, not too too closely, is but probably more than the average first year student, is the um, uh, student union uh, election for for the director at large and all the and all the positions. And if you look at everybody's platform, but. 50% of people uh, are saying, we are going to be petitioning the school, you know, our, vote for me and I will petition the school to put more mental health counselors in the school paid for by the university. We want more more people um, who, who, who you can go to when you're having a mental breakdown because, mm -hmm. cause you, because that's the solution, right? The solution um, to, to, to your human experience. Is, is to try and go and, and, and get it from, from someone at, at the institution. I mean, I mean the, the, the book itself, um, Brave New World, is, uh, it, it, it builds off of all the conditioning. It, it comes exactly from your B.F. Skinner's um, behaviorism. But that, 
that was refuted um, essentially by the James Marlowe's rhesus monkey experiment, and that was the sort of first thing that sort of pushed in, into the reputation of that, which which is the paper was called like the nature of love or something. And when they'd have they'd have um, rhesus monkeys, and they would and they would um, and a cage monkey and a cloth monkey, and then for a mother, and they, they they would have no touch, no touch or no care, um, and the, and the and the and the baby monkeys would would go to the cloth mother mother, um, whenever it could to try and find comfort, try and find comfort in in whatever it could, which was which was the um, which was this cloth mother, and then it, it, it would start getting hungry, it would have to eat, it would go to the uh, wire mother. And it would eat, and then it would go straight back to the claw, saying that just because it was getting its its, its needs met, its, its physical um, food needs met from this from this wire, uh, it doesn't mean that that's where it's going to be. Yeah. It's not conditioned to like the wire monkey, but it would it would it would cling to what was around it, mm -hmm. um, and so so it, so it, like um, like Clark was saying, you know, you have um, you know a, a situation where you you you're so atomized. Um, you're so atomized, and you're going to, you know, trying to trying to follow each passion, each desire, and then where do you go when there you have no meaningful collection connections? You demand it from the institutions of power itself, or or the institutions around you itself, rather than a dispersed, organic community. So um, that's it, it's it's interesting because. Uh, if I can continue on just a little bit more, the uh, I'm in an ethics class as well, and it, and I, I just couldn't grasp the fact that um, you have all these ethical theories, and and everyone kept trying to focus in. I had a group project, and we had to go to an area and and and, and sort of apply an ethical criteria to some monument, and everyone kept focusing in on care ethics, care ethics, mm. care ethics, and and. And I believe in care ethics, but I, 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 I you know, they were they were trying to apply it in places where I don't think it's reasonable to apply. Can you explain? So, what care so the care ethics is, is you know, there's the individual self, um, and then there's the <coughs> connected self. When you are um, to 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 your father, you are a son or a daughter. Um, so your identity, the identity of son or daughter, is an identity that is that is derived from the community right so there are there are communal identities and then there is the then there are intrinsic identities i am tall i have i am five foot ten i have blue eyes these are these are individual objects not relational not relational identities and so um but i think there's there's a personally i believe that you you can't extend like there's a care is a limited you can only care about so many things so it's a limited resource and so, so the, the, the so the you, you have to have a tight interwoven connected self, and then you have to inter you know, Clark's last talk was on hospitality. How do you behave ethically to the other, which it's a little bit different than how you behave ethically to the group. Um, but but there's this but um, in in our project, people were trying to apply care this this this, this principle of of, of usness to um, to places where it, it just to what was a question of native land claims, which is which is a question of principle, not a question of care. Mm -hmm. But but they were but it, they, they couldn't like it, it, there was there seems to be like this 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 longing for for connection mm -hmm. from people who just don't 
who can't have it. Yeah. And so it, 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 for me, it relates to the, to the whole Brave New World thing because cause, cause it's, it's, that, it's that same, same idea of, of having a, a society that is, that is um, the, the, like the, everyone belongs to everyone else. I mean, that's not really truly an individualist creed. Mm -hmm. And when you break it down, it is, it is just a different kind of collectivist creed. Yes, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, so I, what, that's no, that's great. That's, that's really interesting. And what do you think it is that people are, are longing for that they don't have? Meaningful community. Hmm. So, so when you, you talk about not, so is that what you see as like the solution, or part of the solution to some of these mental health problems and stuff that people are experiencing? Um, in my opinion, hmm. and then it's only an opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with you. I think that counseling and and drugs and all those things can be helpful, but I don't think they're the full the full answer. And I think that we've totally lost so much of that supportive community, whether it's a small community or family or larger groups too, that people who really invested in our lives and walk through those difficult things with us. Again, I think when, you, when people become <laughs> things to consume, then people don't go through difficult things with each other. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the, <laughs> the problems with this kind of, with that kind of mentality. Consuming mentality extends to people, people become objects, and then people are thrown away when you get tired of them, <laughs> when they don't meet your needs anymore. Yeah. Makes me think of something that Julia often says that, um, or a s situation that happened to us, and Julia was explaining that she was homeschooling to someone we know, and people might have different views of homeschooling, uh, and they change throughout time and how good the network is. But the point in all that was that in telling this person that Julia was saying that she was going to homeschool, the woman said, well, how will they know what's right and wrong? She felt that the ch children needed to be separated from us in order to go to a public institution in order to know what was right and wrong. And so it's interesting to think that you separate them from the community context, mm -hmm. from that you know familial context or any, uh, and that you, you will get what you need to know uh, about how to think from the, from the public institutions. Right. We have more d more trust for like what we don't know, <laughs> in some ways. and that ends up informing our ethics mm -hmm. rather than you know these other things that actually nurture us and help us through. You know, instead of going to, I mean, there are people in very bad families, like mm -hmm. very abusive, yeah. and, and and so I'm not saying that, but when those are healthy, they are mm -hmm. <laughs> the best. You know, right? So. Yeah, and I think often we're. We're dealing. We're we're giving superficial cures to something that is just like so massively wrong with society. Like when you look at these dysfunctional families, it's like, well, what do we do about this? Like the causes are so deep and so not easy to fix. So it's so much easier to just give a superficial. Yeah. Well, Jeremiah says, fix. you know, uh, the people give a superficial treatment to a mortal wound. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> but this is why I think that, or I wonder. If there will be a cap off, and it will, it will change because I see it getting really bad right now. Like I see a lot of things that are just so absurd and and crazy. But I wonder if it will get better because rather than just keep getting progressively worse, mm -hmm. because the human spirit is a very definitive thing. I think God has made us to be a certain way, and mm -hmm. I just wonder if you know you look at the statistics right now. I don't 
I'm not gonna go through it all, but like they don't lie. Like people are very unhappy. They say supposedly that women are more unhappy now, progressively in toward middle age than they've ever been. Um, you know, you look at love and like consent and like all the romantic stuff. It's just I'm not even go through. It's so interesting. Like consent is venerated as this this postmodern um, secular virtue or something, and it's just bizarre. But I I wonder at a certain point people will become so alienated, and we're still we're feeling it now that that they will finally be like you know maybe romance isn't such a bad thing maybe uh, you know maybe maybe kids should have two parents to a household maybe that's maybe that might work out all okay you know like and I just wonder if that's yeah I, I have a feeling it will bounce back but I don't know yeah I hope there's I hope there's pushback yeah you know, it's it's always hard to see where these trends are going and I think there are areas where we are seeing that pushback already but yeah I, I hope so <laughs> Well, I'm happy to keep talking, but I, I want to let those go who need to go. So please uh, feel free to get up and eat, leave, whatever you want. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you.